0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This episode is my eighth of nine in a mini series focusing on the scholarship of the 2019 Sacred Rights cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I recommend checking out their fantastic work on Twitter at sacred underscore or online at sacred rights.org. My guest on this episode is Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy, the Mellon Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Women's and Gender Studies at Vanderbilt University. She's an expert on Jewish sexual ethics and is working on a book project on sex, risk, and rabbinic text. She has written for Alma, Religion Dispatches, Feminist Studies and Religion, the Jewish Theological Seminary's newsletter, Gleanings, Stylewise blog and State of Formation. Many of her pieces of writing are linked in the show notes, so check those out. In this intriguing conversation, we discuss her work of using classical rabbinic sources and how they are relevant to sexual ethics today. We discuss how STIs are used to stigmatize women, people of color, LGBTQIA plus people, and more. And I have to say that a lot of this was new territory for me. Having never talked about sexual ethics on this show ever, I loved having Dr. Epstein Levy on the show to teach me a few things. A little fun part of this episode is the name drop of the Keeping It 101 podcast which features Dr. Elise Morgenstein first and Dr. Megan Goodwin so hello to my podcast pals at Keeping It 101 you should download their show because it is awesome you can follow Dr. Epstein Levy's work on Twitter at twitter.com slash R J E Levy you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on Jewish sexual ethics with Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy. Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, I am delighted to have you as well. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit?
1: Sure so I'm a practical ethicist who works with with classical Jewish sources. I'm especially interested in sexual ethics um, and my current project, um, which is a book manuscript that I'm trying to get to uh, get get under review at some point this summer, is uh, basically a project of construction constructive sexual ethics i'm interested in using classical rabbinic sources in unexpected ways to come up with a liberatory queer positive sexual ethics that in particular does a better job thinking about sex and risk than i think other treatments of jewish sexual ethics have done
0: mm. excellent um i want to know about this range of interests. Uh, and this is such an interesting area. I've never had your area of expertise on this podcast before. And I'm mm-hmm. curious if you can tell me a little bit about some of the like academic turning points that you had in your life that led you down to this professional specialization that, that you research.
1: Sure. So... Um... I entered college. I mean, how far back do you want me to start? It's up
0: to you. You know, those major turning <laughs> points are all super important. So go yeah. ahead and tell me about them.
1: So I entered college thinking that I was going to major in biology. I wanted to be the next Jane Goodall. And I took freshman biology and freshman chemistry and was quickly disabused of the notion that that was ever going to happen. Um, And I found out around the same time, I had figured on taking on a religion major as kind of a fun sidetrack. And then it turned out I was really good at it. I'm really interested in it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of shifted into that department. Um, I did my under, I thought I was going to be, I knew I wanted to do something constructive. And I thought I was going to be a constructive theologian. And I did my undergraduate thesis on actually post-Holocaust theology and its relationship with environmentalism. And I went to grad school thinking I was going to do that. And I kept trying to do ethics through my theology. That is, instead of trying to think about ways in which the divine might work, ways in which the universe might be constructed related to that, I found, honestly, I just wanted to keep telling people what to do. Mm. And it was causing me to write pretty bad theology. (laughs) And it occurred, and as it happens... UVA also had, which is where I did my graduate work, had a pretty, and has a pretty strong ethics program, and when it hit me that I could actually get a PhD in telling people what to do, that, you know, that was kismet. Excellent. Um, And as I started working more explicitly on ethics, I found that I got really frustrated with the ways a lot of the constructive work in religious ethics that I was reading in this program um, was frankly so bloody ignorant about sex in ways that, and just ignorant about empirical things that even, that I, as a queer person, and I, like I want to emphasize, like a boring married lesbian who mm-hmm. doesn't you know, do any of the fun stuff we associate with queer community, right? <laughs> but nevertheless, being a queer person in dialogue with other queer people, things that I would know just by virtue of that, this stuff was so bloody ignorant about and just didn't seem to care. Excellent.
2: Um,
1: and I wanted to do better. So I wrote a dissertation on sexually transmitted infections um, in dialogue with classical rabbinic purity laws. Um, which I imagine we'll get back to when we discuss my op-ed, yes. and then I'm trying to expand upon that a little bit for the book.
0: Excellent. So, you know, you write about research, write about in research sexual ethics and religion. Um, what got you interested in like sex specifically as a research agenda? Like, did you come at that from any different angles? And like was it always connected with religion or was it separate? And then you combined the sexual ethics and the religion later on.
1: Um, I mean, as I mentioned, like I went to grad school in a religious studies program. I was mm-hmm. interested in religion. I was interested. I've always been interested in how people make meaning of the world and how people organize sort of systems of norms around those ways of making meaning of the world and of the- and of their lives and relationships. And I found that at least, you know, co- given the canon that I had been given to study, re- academic religious ethics was doing a really bad job dealing with sex. Mm, okay. um, I've
2: since,
1: you know, I've since found wonderful exceptions. Um, womanist theology and ethics, for example, I think are notable of exceptions to what I said. Um, Kelly Brown Douglas's work is fantastic, and there she gets so much right in her work on sex and sexuality. But it's frustrating that she and others like her are, I think, exceptions to a rule so far.
0: Excellent. How um, did you? Um, how did you get involved in studying Judaism? As far as your one of your areas of emphasis.
1: I mean, I'm Jewish. I'm <laughs> excuse me. I'm Jewish in a complicated way that made me want to get in and study it. Mm. Um, Generally, when I have a... And and certainly this is an answer to your question about why did I get interested in studying sexuality. I figured out I was queer. I wanted to know more about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I got frustrated that people weren't treating it in the ways that I thought it deserved to be treated. And my own relationship to it was complicated. So I wanted to learn more. Ditto Judaism. I knew I was Jewish. I'm Jewish. I have, my father was Jewish. My mother was not. I look extremely Jewish. I'm a practicing Jew. I'm a believing Jew. Um, You know, my name obviously gives things away. So it you know, when the, when God forbid the anti-Semites come, it's not like I'm going to be somehow protected by the fact that my mom was a blonde haired, blue eyed, quite Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Mm. And yet, because it was my mother and not my father, that makes my Jewish status legally complicated.
0: Mm. Interesting. And that
1: interested that interested me. And I generally, generally my reaction to things I have complicated relationships with is to want to get out and study them.
0: Mm. Did you grow up in an interfaith home? Like, were both religion were different religions being practiced in the home?
1: I grew up in a kind of an SDNR. well no not even spiritual but not religious my so my parents were divorced my dad was kind of a jubu type
2: hmm.
1: my mother was atheist agnostic and yet deeply culturally protestant so it was just kind of the and both of them had all sorts of questions in interesting and sometimes frustrating ways about religion and the way it works in the world so
0: do you think that like the way would... they were asking questions about religion was inspiring to you as well in a way?
1: Probably yes.
0: Excellent. Um, so you have a a, a piece out that um, you sent to me that I read the other day, and I really liked mm-hmm. it, and it's really fascinating because it connects um, a lot of conversations that we have that we need to have more of today. To ancient traditions and ancient teachings. So this article is called mm-hmm. how ancient rabbis can help combat STI stigma. And now I've never discussed STIs or sexually transmitted infections mm-hmm. on the show before, but you note that the, in the article, that 80% <laughs> of people have one of the two common strains of the herpes simplex virus. So, you mentioned, and that's how, probably
1: an undercount, by the way.
0: It, it, oh my gosh, that's so. It's just so interesting <laughs> because you know I don't yeah. follow a lot of medical stuff, so that's that's just really interesting to me as well. Um, and you mentioned how STIs have been used for generations as a way to oppress and stigmatize women, people of color, and LGBTQIA people. And I was thinking about the latter, which was documented so well in this amazing documentary Mm -hmm. that I saw called How to Survive a Plague, um, Mm -hmm. which was released in 2012 about the 1980s AIDS crisis. And I want to tie in religion here. Um, What are some lesser known examples of how STIs are used within religion to oppress people such as women, people of color, or LGBTQIA people?
1: So the within religion part is a little complicated to answer, and I'm going. And here's how I'm going to address that. I'm going to address it by dodging it. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if you listen to uh our mutual friend Megan Goodwins uh and Elise Morgenstein first. like uh, keeping it 101 Love podcast. It. And they have this catchphrase, right? You may think you're done with religion, but religion isn't done with you. Hundred percent. I may have I may have nagged that a bit, but that's the upshot. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a comparative, I'm not a student of comparative religions. I'm not an historian, so I can't necessarily point to and say, here is a place within a particular, you know, distinct, what we would recognize as a religious context where STIs have been used to oppress, um, these minoritized groups. But what I can tell you is, or I can give you several examples from quote unquote secular and actually, you know, deeply product deeply Protestant society um, where that oppression might be, you know, put in secular terms, mm. but, you know, because religion isn't done with you, you know, just scratch a little bit. And of course there, you know, there are religious concepts there. Absolutely. So, um, one of my favorite historical examples um, and That gets a little complicated, but I think is worth thinking about. Is the relationship in nineteenth century Europe um, with with Jews and syphilis? So before basically before the hiv pandemic when you said vd or ftis what you actually meant unless you were specifying something else was syphilis right vd meant syphilis it was the FTI that was kind of representative of all FTIs, mm-hmm. um it, probably because it was the scariest most deadly one mm-hmm. right even though gonorrhea has was and is actually much much more common mm. um And so, and so, you know, syphilis became kind of representative of contagion in general. And there were these two kind of competing ideas in Central Europe during the 19th century, one of which said syphilis is a Jewish disease. Mm. Um, You know, it's something that we associate with the underclasses. Jews are a paradigmatic underclass. There are all these ways that we think of them as primitive, as dirty, as lower class, as, you know, disease in and of themselves in some ways and we can and you know we can link it to these kind of weird practices they have you know what are they you know they circumcise you know they're circumcised they have weird marital practices weird practices around menstruation um and their bodies are also just different Mm. um and so we're going to link syphilis to them but you also have this other Um, kind of counterweight in the same cultural context at the same time that says Jews are special, Jews are unique, Jews have these hygienic practices that we could actually learn something from. And in fact, Jews are so different and so special that they're actually congenitally immune to syphilis. And Mm. the thing that ties these two together Right is the idea that Jews are somehow this different species. The oppressed group is somehow different, has some kind of different affinity to the STI, whether for quote good or for ill. But the but in either case, the STI becomes a way of othering this group, of setting them apart. Either they're better about it, and they're kind of pestilized, or they're worse about it, and they're this vermin, right?
0: Yeah. Um are there any examples from like women sp- specifically in the ways that women were, you know, oppressed by through the use of um, you know, blaming them for STIs or anything like that? Can you think of oh, any examples sure. like that?
1: I can think of they I can I can think of several examples. I mean, sex workers were associated with STIs, you know, ever since we have records of writing about them. Um one of the weird, interesting rabbit holes I went down when researching my dissertation was actually World War II era propaganda posters about us, um, preventing VD among the troops. Oh, interesting! And there are several in which VD itself is personified as a beautiful and slightly sexy woman. <laughs> um, and one of and one of my favorites, as it were, is one that. Um, and if you want, I can actually email you this image after we're done talking. If I would love you want to it for show notes or anything. Um, there's one that has a beautiful woman in a long red gown with, you know, long strappy red gown with a skeleton face on her. And she's marching arm in arm with, a, with Hitler and Tojo, um, you know, the leader of World War II Japan, right? mm mm-hmm. um, and the legend on the poster says "VD, worst of the three. Mm. So, I mean, you've got a woman personified as as this killer F.T.I. That's you know marching arm in arm with you know you know the one of the worst bogeymen of the century. Not mm. that Hitler was you know a bogeyman man in the sense of being imaginary, but it's like. You know, especially looking back now, we think of them as kind of synonymous with human evil.
0: Gotcha. Well, and, you know, even though religion plays a role in like creating uh, systems of oppression as well, um, mm-hmm. you know, you also believe, you write about in the piece, that religion can be part of the solution of destigmatizing STIs. And we very much still do stigmatize in today's society, I mean, even though these are incredibly oh, yeah. common, it's something that you just don't speak about. Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually, for a project for um, a guest lecture for Liz, I was actually looking up images to try to represent that the other day, and that is a one hell of a, an internet rabbit hole, believe mm. you me. Um, but yeah, so no, we don't we don't talk about it. it, it at best, it's a punchline, right? And at mm-hmm. worst, it's something you just don't talk about. You know, it's shameful. You feel like your life is over. That's the narrative, right?
0: Yeah, totally. Um. So, in the piece so, that uh, you know, in the piece, you also talk about something called um, Mishnah. Did I say that correctly?
1: The Mishnah, yes. So, the Mishnah is part of the Talmud. Um, it is a collection of oral tradition, a written collection of oral traditions of. Rabbis who were active between the first and third centuries CE. Um, and they're collected in this document that, you know, is kind of vaguely organized into sections and subsections, seders and tra- orders and tractates. Um, and one thing that the rabbis of the Mishnah come back to over and over again is this thing called ritual impurity.
2: Mm.
0: So how, so, does the, yeah, so how does this help us frame our conversations about like destigmatizing STIs today? And then what are those categories okay. as well?
1: Okay, so ritual impurity or tumah um, is the Hebrew word, and impurity is kind of uh, bad, but it's better than the alternative translation of that word tumah, mm-hmm. um, is a metaphysical category, is a metaphysical condition that is incompatible with physical contact with the temple and the thing and the holy things associated with the temple. Okay. That's it. It's not, it's not sinful. It's not evil. It doesn't mean you did something wrong. It's if the temple is represents kind of one pole of existence, but you know, still part of existence, then impurity represents another pole of it. And both of these you know, things are things that you have to navigate through your life as an embodied person who also has these ritual commitments. Corpses are paradigmatic sources of impurity, certain kinds of animals, certain kinds of bodily eruptions and secretions. And the thing is, all of us come into contact with these things. Mm-hmm. It's, it isn't even forbidden to come into contact with them. In fact... Um, it's a commandment to be fruitful and multiply, right, to have children, and yet ejaculating makes you ritually impure. Mm. It is a commandment to respectfully prepare the dead for burial, but touching a corpse renders you impure. Mm. So even things that you are not only, that are not only good to do, but that you're actually required to do, there are some of those that can render you impure. So it's kind of a fact of life. And You know, the way the mission envisions shaping a person morally around this fact of life has to, it doesn't, it's not about avoiding it at all costs. It's about being a level-headed, careful reader and navigator and really diagnostician and treater of this really socially transmitted contagion. Because if you are a social actor, sooner or later, you are going to come into some contact with something that is going to render you impure. Like, that's just a fact of being a person in the physical world. Mm. And so you need to know how to recognize it and deal with it.
0: Interesting. Okay, so how does... Um, so, basically, what you're saying is we all go in and out of these states yes. of impurity. So, what does that mean for like something like modern-day herpes,
1: Well, herpes is in some ways is actually the best analog to ritual impurity because it's so ubiquitous. Um, Because thing is, herpes is also kind of like, and STS in general, are kind of like ritual impurity. They are socially transmitted contagions that are undesirable in and of themselves, but are likely and sometimes even inevitable results of desirable and even necessary forms of social interaction. So the smart thing isn't silent, stigmatized, you know, run away, run away, kill it with fire. Smart thing to do is, and the ethical thing to do is to, you know, learn about it, talk about it, figure out how to manage it. And, you know, be in dialogue with this socially transmitted contagion that you probably have or you have, you probably have already. Mm. This isn't because it's not something that any one person can necessarily avoid fully.
0: Gotcha. So, and I know that you write in the piece that the Mishnah has an exhaustive level of detail. Um, is that related to like the Jewish tradition of like debating and discussing issues in incredible detail? Anyway, is that just part of the the tradition itself? Oh, totally. Itself?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, which in some ways proves my point, because this socially transmitted contagion is treated exactly like any other thing that might come under discussion in rabbinic discourse. Okay. Talk it to death, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, and, you know, like, openly talking about something to death, as you just said, like, about things that are normally taboo— Um, It almost destigmatizes it automatically because when something is talked about in very clear detail, it just becomes less taboo, Um, which is why I'm so delighted to talk about this on the show because it's just something that uh, should be talked about more since it is so common. And, you know, in the article you also write, um, in the rabbi's world, everyone cycle between states of purity and impurity and anyone not only could but almost certainly would come into contact with someone or something that transmitted impurity so to me this is so crucial because you know sex and sexually transmitted infections it's a part of life and if a friend of yours tell you that they have contracted an sti and then you shun them you might be setting yourself up for embarrassment because it could very easily happen to you as well do you know so it could happen to anyone oh absolutely um so, absolutely. yeah, it's just so interesting to discuss. Um, are there any examples of this, like, ritual impurity or um, a concept similar to tuma from other religions besides Judaism that you have found out about or that fascinate you?
1: Um, I don't have a good example to point to, to be honest. That's um, totally fine. I, I, I'm I a little sort of narrowly focused That's in absolutely the cool. tradition I work from, just because, like, I learned the languages to do this tradition, right? Yeah.
0: Well, and you know what's um, so what's so important? So what is, yeah. And if you, well, I love it when yeah. people say things like, mm, "I'm not really sure," because that, um, yeah. that is the responsible thing to do, isn't isn't it?
1: I quite agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I, yeah. Um.
0: So you can I mean, mentioned... you
1: can even actually link this back to STIs, right? Um. The most, you know, some of, some of the most kind of insidious ways of spreading STIs and getting them out of control, right? You, you don't want to be worried about the person about sleeping with the person who knows they have an STI and discloses to you and says, here's what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be worried about sleeping with the person who swears they're quote-unquote clean and never actually got tested.
0: Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I know that you are putting this all together in a, a book. You mentioned it earlier a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how the book is going and how it will be structured and how the project is going?
1: Sure. So the book is centered around the claim that sex is a kind of social relation and should be treated in kind of ethical contiguity with other forms of social relationship. Um, Now, if any listeners come from, for example, women and gender studies backgrounds, they're going to be like, yeah, duh. And that is valid religious studies has a little religious ethics in particular has a little bit of catching up to do on that score. Um, so in the field I'm coming out of, it's much less of a yeah duh claim. Um, and I'm particularly interested in examining, um, the way sex is connected to other forms of social relations through the category of risk. Um, and so to that end, I'm, Using a couple of examples from rabbinic literature to explore different aspects of sex, sociality, and risk. One of them carried over from the dissertation is this whole piece with ritual impurity and STIs we were discussing. Um, another big one I'm using actually is I'm using the activity of rabbinic debate and interpretation itself as an analog to uh, BDSM, you know, bondage, discipline, um, dominance, submission, stages and masochism. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm treating them both as examples of what I'm calling risk condition communities, communities that are formed around an affinity for an activity that shapes one and forms one in particular directions and is also inherently risky. Mm. Um, turns out there are some rabbinic stories that make it very clear that the act of rabbinic interpretation, because after all, like you're playing with God's word here, according to the rabbi's frame of mind, right? You're playing with fire. Mm. Um, You're playing with words that do real things in the world, and you're playing with them in turn also does real things in the world. And sometimes those things can be devastating. Mm. Um, And so I'm treating those two communities as parallel examples of communities that are centered around this activity that is really dangerous and also really life-giving and pleasure-giving and identity-affirming.
0: Interesting. Well, when the book comes out, we should uh, do a part two episode, and I can read the I'd uh, love to the, read the BDSM section, and we can do an entire episode <laughs> just on that easily. Yes. Um, so, um, where can people yes. uh, find you and follow you if they want to know more about your work and what you're doing, and if they're fascinated by what they heard from you today?
1: Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is r as in Royal, J as in Jockey, E as in egg, Levy, L E V as in Victor I. So that's my Twitter handle. Excellent. Um, and you can also this this is actually going to uh give me the kick in the butt I need to um update update my professional website. It's been a bit. Um, but you can find my professional website at RJ I'm also. You can also find my faculty page um, at, for the website for, website for the Jewish Studies Program at Vanderbilt University, where I teach in both the Jewish Studies and Women's and Gender Studies, now Newly Departments, actually.
0: Excellent. Well, um, Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy thank you so much for coming on classical ideas this has been a real pleasure and i'm excited that we finally got to meet and i'm excited that we got to hang out and chat today
1: likewise this was a this was a food greg thank you so much
0: classical ideas is produced by me greg soden music on classical ideas is composed and performed by derek streibik you can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at Outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast Thanks so much for listening.